And so for me, it was like the only way to know was to do it. And um, of course, like I'm, I'm really glad I did because that was sort of my ticket out. Hey, that's this week's guest for episode 269 of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. Now in its ninth year, it's the show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. So Cecilia is a documentary film and audio storyteller. In 2020, she graduated with a master's in multimedia journalism from the University of Oregon. She has freelance as a videographer, editor, and producer for documentary production companies that include Expedition Studios, Storyline Media, and Blue Chalk Media. She has worked with the producers of This American Life, Listener's Podcast, and The Portland Mercury, and has received multiple awards, including Best Oregon Filmmaker. And it's that little credit about This American Life that made me want to reach out to her. But first, support for the Creative Nonfiction Podcast is brought to you by West Virginia Wesleyan College's Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing. Now in its 10th year, this affordable program boasts a low student-to-faculty ratio and a strong sense of community. Recent CNF faculty include Random Billings Noble, Jeremy Jones, and CNF pod alum Sarah Einstein. There's also fiction and poetry tracks with recent faculty including Ashley Bryant-Phillips and Jacinta Townsend, as well as Diane Gilliam and Savannah Sippel. So no matter your discipline, if you're looking to up your craft or learn a new one, Consider West Virginia Wesleyan right in the heart of Appalachia. That's mfa.wvwc.edu for more information and dates of enrollment. And it's getting close. Promotional support for the podcast is also brought to you by Hippocamp 2021. It's back in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Registration's still open. It's a conference for creative nonfiction writers and aficionados. Marion Winnick will be this year's keynote speaker. We've got debut CNF author panel featuring Lily Danziger, Greg Mania, Carol Smith, and Janine Ouellette. It's August 13th to 15th. And if you use the promo code CNFPOD21, you get 50 bucks off your registration fee. You dig? Still recording on my second string microphone here in South Jersey on Eastern Standard Time. And I'm so crunched for time this week that I can't offer up, up much by way of insights, parting shots, and the charismatic, charismatic magnetism on mic that you've come to love from the greatest podcast in the world. I will put a prompt of some kind in the outro to this episode based on this interview. It's not homework, but if you're one of those people who loved homework, then you'll find your bliss. Show notes and links to Cecilia's work, as well as ways to support the podcast are at brendanamera.com. Hey, hey. So Cecilia talks about her entree, if that's how you even pronounce it, into documentary film and doing dirty little secret jobs to fund the work she wants to do. And we get into the behind-the-scenes production of her piece for This American Life, this one about her grandmother who was quickly succumbing to dementia. You can follow Cecilia at Cecile Brown with two N's on Instagram and see her short films at ceciliabrownmedia.com. So with that, it's a one and a two. In a room.
Yeah, well, so I, like, I actually am reading this book right now that I normally, I'm kind of surprised that I'm reading it. I'm almost done with it. It's called The Empathy Diaries. And it's a memoir by Sherry Turkle, who used to be, like, my total hero. Um, and it's not, it's nothing against Sherry Turkle now. It's just that my work has changed a lot um, in the last few years, and I stopped reading her stuff. But she is um, an MIT professor. She's an academic, and she studies social social psychology and technology and kind of like how um, technology impacts our minds and the way we communicate and how um, it either like inhibits the way we communicate with people or understand ourselves or maybe makes it better. And so I used to read her all of her books obsessively when I was studying psychology in undergrad and when I was working on my honors thesis. And uh, I stopped reading her when I kind of like started shifting away to other things. And then I turned 30 a couple of weeks ago and my mother gave me this book and it's her memoir. And I was like, mm. oh my God, mom, like, why would I want to read about Sherry Turkle's life? Like, I only care about her research. And it's, I, I am surprisingly really into, into this book. Um, and I'm just realizing how much the two of us have in common, um, more so than I ever thought. And, um, and it's actually reminding me why I was interested in that work and why I should, and like, you know, that I still want to work on trying to bring that into my documentary work. Um, that whole idea behind like technology and how it impacts how we communicate face to face. And you said your work has changed a lot in the last few years. So in, in what way has it changed? Like, where was it, you know, a few years ago and, and, you know, what's the kind of path you're on at the moment? Yeah. Well, so I, like I said, I studied psychology in undergrad and I, while I was there, I did this thesis. Um, it was like a 120 page paper on, you know, how basically technology is making us more socially awkward. And, um, it was like, it was around the time that people were starting to do things like break up with people over text message. Mm -hmm. And I was just alarmed by that. I remember that was one of the questions that I had in my survey for all my subjects, like, have you broken up with someone over text message? Kind of like a how could you do this? Which of course now it's like everyone is doing that. Um, <laughs> it was sort of the beginning of social media. Like I was such a Luddite and I was just so negative about how technology was going to essentially like ruin us as a society and inhibit our ability to connect with people um, because we wouldn't, we would stop practicing um, communicating face to face and then we would forget how to do it. And so that was a lot of my research. And then like I left college and in, at the beginning of college, I thought I wanted to be a therapist. I, I thought I wanted to be a therapist when I was like 15 and decided mm -hmm. that that was my path. And, um, towards the end of college, I kind of became a little bit, um, disenchanted with the whole like psychology field and, you know, just how much it's about, over diagnosis and over medicating people. And I decided to pivot and try my hand at market research, which is something that like most people have never heard of. I think it was what I jumped into when I came out of college. Cause it was like this way for me to still talk to people and have like intimate conversations with people. But, um, 
not have it be grounded in this sort of like scientific medical setting. And so I did market research work for like six years. And a lot of that work, like me going into market research was kind of inspired by all of this research I did about like how we use technology um, and how it affects the way we make decisions because my first job was in usability research. So I was like studying how people use websites, studying how people interact with um, their phones and how they use apps. And then essentially like taking the information I would gather from these interviews or focus groups and then use giving that information to like consumer companies who were curious how people use their products. So like I was in a very different world before I entered documentary filmmaking and audio storytelling like that. That all came into my life pretty recently. Um, so that's kind of what I mean when I say like it was a real pivot and it really feels like an, something from a relic of like who I used to be this book or like Sherry Turkle as a person. Well, that's great. And it's so important to kind of underscore that. A lot of people might want to do, I don't know, X, Y, Z. They might want to write a book or or take up or do some film, but they've got like this 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 day job that they feel like is yeah. in the way. But you found a way to do it in your off time as a way to see if it was you know test the waters to see if it was something you like, and you made the time for it, and you made like a really cute, insightful movie about your mom, which is really about yourself, like you were saying. And I think it's just real important that if it, if it is important to you to experiment with this kind of stuff, that you have to prioritize it and make the time for it. And it's just, it's, uh, it's encouraging to, to hear your story behind that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I'm, you know, I'm proud of myself for making that work and for doing that experimenting. I had also been thinking about, I'd been thinking about leaving market research for years and so it took me a long time to get to that point where I actually had the motivation to like to do this on my off hours when I was exhausted and you know to spend all this time on a project that maybe wouldn't go anywhere and maybe no one would ever see. And then finally, you know, I just like and was like I have to I have to know. I just have to know if there's something else out there for me. And I'm so indecisive and, you know, for so long I had been trying to figure out what that other thing was. And so for me, it was like the only way to know was to do it. There's a reason I didn't go into this work for so long because my, well, first, because my parents told me never to go into journalism. Um, <laughs> and, and this is why, because there's no money in it. Uh, my dad is a writer. My mom was a photographer until she quit her job to go into publishing. All of my parents' friends are writers, photojournalists. Like my whole upbringing, I was told not to do this work. And so I didn't for a long time and or what I consider a long time, you know, like six years. And I, I, I'm actually kind of proud of myself that I was able to find a way to come into it it, it, what's sad is, you know, here we have, you know, journalism in, a, in the free press is protected under the First Amendment of the Constitution. It's the, the, the fourth estate. It's this thing that is so valuable to our democracy that it's in the very First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. And yet it's kind of like a vanity project because there's yeah. just it's not supported in a way that that 
enough people can do it for a living and to hold the right people accountable and to tell the kind of stories you want to tell. You want to be able to do it for a living, but oftentimes it's it's starting to become more like being a short story writer where it's just like, okay, here's this thing you can do for fun on the side if you have the chops and the skill, but it's not going to pay the bills. And that's really sad for something that is so integral to the fabric of this entire country and this democracy. I know. I know. I know. It's it's really sad. Like, I I hate the idea that journalism, you know, is dying. I don't think it is. I've been told that. Um, I, I mean, there's aspects of it that it, that are dying. There's like, it's harder to find full-time work, which is why we're all freelancing and taking on these random gigs to pay the bills. But you know, I'm, I'm an optimist, so I have to believe that there's a way to make this work for myself, I think. So what is it about documentary film that really lights a fire under you? When I was in high school, I was a, I became a documentary photographer. Actually, when I was eight years old, I became a documentary photographer. Um, so I have always been a visual person. Like when I was eight, my godmother, who's a documentary photographer, put a really heavy Nikon film camera in my hands and was, you know, just told me to go make pictures. That's what she says. Make picture, make pictures. She doesn't like the word shoot. Um, Mm. She thinks it's violent. And so make pictures. And I started photographing when I was eight. And it was this way for me to see the world differently. It was a lens that I could hide behind. It kind of enabled me to be in spaces that maybe um, I wouldn't otherwise feel comfortable in as a kid. You know, I was one of, I'm, I've always been one of those people that like un- awkwardly stares at people. Cause I'm a, I'm a people person and I'm an observer by nature. And so I'll stare and people will, kind of like my friends will be like, stop staring, you know? Um, (laughs) But I can't, I just can't help it. And, um, and so like the camera to me was this thing that I could hide behind and observe the world from a comfortable distance where people weren't, weren't made uncomfortable by it. Um, And so I've, I've always loved documentary photography for that reason. And then, so like documentary film for me kind of merged this interest in, you know, the visual landscape and composing the world into pictures and like making sense of the world through the lens and visually, and this sort of interest in psychology, which, you know, I've always had. um, And for me, that interest in psychology has always been grounded and also like just an interest in people. And I'm really curious about people and I like talking people. Um, and that's why doing interviews like this is so weird because I'm always the person doing the interviewing and asking the questions. And like, I really prefer to be in that position where I'm hearing from someone else. I'm listening. I'm getting someone Me else. Too. To, like, Me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. The wor- I'm the worst interviewee. It's yeah. as much as I do this. And I, it's always a challenge for me to interview people who are really good interviewers because I know that they know the game. And it's like, you always want to make it in such a way where you feel like you're valuing their time and, and you want to play on that level. So if I ever got a chance to interview, like say, you know, I've interviewed some great interviewers, but if I interviewed someone like an Ira Glass, I'd be freaking out. Cause it's like, he's been interviewed a lot. He's, there's nobody better than him. So it's just like, 
oh my god how do you how do you do that but i, oh, I told like i told gross oh my gosh i can't even imagine oh yeah yeah oh yeah it's yeah it's just these people who are just such great uh miners of information great conversationalists and great askers of questions and it's a uh, it's super intimidating for sure yeah I, it's really intimidating and it's a really fun challenge um yeah like getting getting someone to who you've never met to just be comfortable enough in your presence to open up to you. Um, and like, to me, that is what's so beautiful about documentary work and audio storytelling is like that. That's so much what the work is about for me is about like getting people to tell me something that maybe they haven't shared with someone else. And I, that's sort of like the therapy aspect of it. I feel like I bring to all of my interviews is like, how do I make someone comfortable enough to really tell me what's on their mind and not just like give me a spiel? How do you get there? How do you get them there yeah. to, to, to crack yeah. that egg? Yeah. It's a puzzle. It's like, what questions can I ask to, you know, you're thinking as an interviewer and like, I'm sure you understand this, like you're thinking down the line, especially, I mean, this is different, but especially when you have a story in mind, it's like, mm -hmm. how do I get them from A to Z? Because I've got Z on my mind and like, I've got to go through 26 steps to get there. So it's, it's like, there's a craft to it to be able to ask someone a question that gets them to say what you want. And then the beauty of it is that, you know, it never goes that way. And it always ends up, you always end up in some place that you didn't expect and someone says something you didn't expect. And then you, the beauty is like using your creativity to work with that, um, to try and make something amazing out of it. Like, I guess going back to your question about doc, like the beauty of filmmaking to me is that it just merges these two loves that I have. So I get to talk to people and then instead of like market research, I actually get to share what they're saying in a really meaningful way. And then it isn't, you know, just based, I'm not just working with audio. There's this other creative element of like telling a story visually, where if you can tell a story without words, um, it's like, to me, unbelievably powerful if you can kind of like oscillate in one film doing both of those things where like maybe someone shares something overtly, maybe you're revealing something without hearing them actually say it themselves. And like, that's just, I, I, it's just incredible to be able to do that work. I think. Well, your Tuesday at the track film is kind of like that where, you know, you're not explicitly there on mic. There's very little dialogue of anything. It's just, it's a lot of very, expressiveness and it really captures the track and I'm someone who writes a lot about horse racing has written a book about oh, two really? books about horse racing wow. and one published one one not published one was an MFA project that I still have my my fingers crossed for because I think it's one of the better things I've ever done I just <laughs> but that's neither here nor there but the fact is I've I've covered a lot of horse racing and um so it was really cool to to see the video you you know the movie you made about about Portland Meadows it, oh, but yeah. but but the point being like that one's very expressive it's very uh, ambiance driven and it's to your point it just kind of a, it's almost like a, a wordless a, a, a wordless film in a way even though there is some it's just it's a very it's very evocative in the mood you created that's funny that you picked up on that because it was actually for an assignment in my master's program 
um, it was the first film I made in the master's program I was in. I was in this master's for multimedia journalism at the University of Oregon. And the assignment was to tell a story without words. So that was the story that we, that I created with my friend, Tim was to tell a story of like, who are the people frequenting, frequenting this, um, this place without using any words. And I love, obviously I loved that assignment because, um, it's a really good challenge and gets you to think visually about storytelling, um, in a way that's like maybe not the most natural to someone who comes from a world where we're like inundated with podcasts, news podcasts, and, you know, a lot of traditional documentary storytelling is like really heavily relies on, you know, talking head interviews and stuff. So it's, it's like, it's a really hard skill to develop, to be able to do that, to tell a story without words. Um, but I, I left it. Yeah. It's uh the, there's few, fewer environments that are more, nuanced and textured than than a racetrack you've got the degenerates who are the gambling degenerates and then there's the high class people and then the you know there's high low middle class there's of course the the sheer beauty and the athleticism of the horses not to mention the the jockeys who are pound for pound some of the best athletes in the world oh my god and it's just uh there's so many great great sounds the the hooves and the dirt the exp the exp Expo, um, explosion of of uh, of uh, exhalation of the horses as they're turning for home and they're really sprinting. It's just like an air cannon, and it's something you can't experience unless you're on the fence. And it's it's so cool that you, you know you're able to just capture so much so much of that. It was it was really cool for me to watch as someone who just knows that world inside and out. Yeah, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I'm really sad too that that place is gone. It's no longer with us. Um, That's right. Because it was clearly an establishment. Like you can tell from the characters who are there. Like that old, like the old couple. Oh my gosh. Like the old couple, I think it was the man and his mother. Um, He'd been taking her there for so long. They're the only people you hear speak, I think, in the whole film. Um, And talk about expressive. Like, oh my gosh, that old woman, her face. Oh, yeah. uh, it was just like she, you know, meeting people like that and being able to just like, they're the kind of people whose story you can share without hearing from them in a way. Like you really get a sense of who she is without even hearing her speak, which I loved. Yeah. And you really fill the frame with her face. Mm, and yeah. and is it something like, are you far away and zooming in or are you almost in no. her lap when you've got the camera that close? I'm right there. And, and that is something else that I learned from my godmother, Stella Johnson, the woman who taught me how to photograph. She, um, you know, historically just will never use zoom lenses. And her whole rule was like, you never shoot vertically. And you never, um, you never use a zoom. You always get as close to the people as you, as you need to get in order to make the frame work in order to make the composition you want, because using zoom lenses is cheating and Mm -hmm. like using zoom, it can be a form of voyeurism where you can stand far away from someone and 
capture them without them knowing. So like, if you really want to make a picture, like you got to get right up close to that person and photograph them in a way that what you're seeing in the frame later is actually like what was being produced in the moment. Like it is, you're not cheating essentially. So, you know, of course I went into this journalism program and they've got tons of zoom lenses. And so I was like, you know, working, I obviously had like a 700, 70 to 200 millimeter lens, which is like a crazy long lens. Um, to photograph, to film the horses. Cause like you can only get so close to horses. And so I kept like switching back and forth my lenses so that when I was actually spending time with people, um, you know, I could get really up close and personal with her. So I got really close. Nice. And what are some films and filmmakers that inspire you that, that you try to model your work after? So there's a bunch, I mean, Like, I'm thinking right now about this film I saw this past week called Uncertain, which is um, an incredible documentary about, it's sort of a portrait of a town. Um, And it was made by this couple, what are their names? Oh, Anna, Anna Sandalins and Ewan Ewan McNichol. I'm so bad with names. Um, I always, I'm so bad. When everyone's always like, who are your heroes? Who do you model your work after? I'm like, that movie, you know, in 2015, here's the film. I have no idea who was made after. I don't know who edited it. But it's this couple that actually lives in the Pacific Northwest and they made this beautiful documentary um, about this town called Uncertain in Texas. Um, and it's really just like a beautiful portrait of a couple of the people in this town. There isn't like this big news story or issue at the center of it. It's just like who lives here and what are their tiny little struggles that they go through on a daily basis. Um, and each person has their own sort of like narrative arc, um, but it's small. It's like this guy trying to this one guy who's a hunter who's trying to kill this one wild hog that he's been like tracking for years. And um, this other old man who's a fisherman and, you know, this lake that he fishes in, um, there's a algae bloom problem. And so like the fish are dying. And so there's all these like tiny little um, vignettes inside of this story that's just like beautifully shot. Um, and it's really slow. Um, there's no talking head interviews. It's very, um, it's the kind of, it's the kind of filmmaking that I really love, like true verite style filmmaking where you're just kind of like the filmmakers are just kind of a fly on the wall and you're just living life with, you know, with these people. Um, so that's one I've, I really love, uh, Garrett Bradley. She is the director of the film Time that was nominated for an Oscar this year. Um, She's made a bunch of other shorts for the New York Times. um, And she, I think, I mean, I think Time is another documentary that I just um, fell in love with. She kind of uses old, um, she uses old home videos and blends them with footage that she's filming with this family who is waiting for um, 
someone in the family to get out of prison. Um, and it's kind of a love story about this woman and her husband who's in prison um, as she waits for him to get out. And so it's like really creatively done and feels really different than, again, it's like, it's a verite documentary. I feel like you don't see as many verite documentaries um, these days as once upon a time, like a lot of the documentaries that are being made are very like, you know, the kind of stuff you see on Netflix, it's a lot of it is true crime. And like a lot of it is, you know, very talking head heavy. And so when you get these documentaries every once in a while, like Uncertain or Time or um, The Sensitives is another one that was a film about people who have chemical sensitivities and have to live this very isolated world. When you get those like true verite films, I, I think they're really special when they're done well, because they're really hard to make. Uh, and there's a craft to it that you just don't see as much anymore, I think. I would think the real challenge with that is getting the right, capturing the audio and capturing the dialogue yeah, the, so like, yeah. So what is the challenge to, to do that when you're trying to do that kind of, like you say, verite filmmaking? Yeah. I mean, I was just like, for example, I'm working on this audio story and I was just out this morning recording and I was thinking like, oh my God, it is so easy <laughs> by comparison to just be worrying about audio. When you're making film, when you're making documentary films, I mean, when you're when you have the budget, usually you have like a team. So there's one person who's running sound, one person who's running camera, one person who's talking to the characters um, and sort of like producing and keeping track of what's what. But all of the work I've done has been by myself for the most part. I mean, there's some projects where I've had a second camera person um, who will help out some days, but like a lot of my projects have just been with without budget and I'm just kind of making it work. So I'll do a lot of it on my own. And um, it's, it's like so hard <laughs> to <laughs> try and talk to someone, um, like make conversation with someone um, while getting the shot, you know, having this like incredibly composed shot and then also making sure that, you know, checking your audio levels, making sure they're not peaking, um, let alone if you have like two people who are both wearing mics and you're trying to make sure that the audio is going well for both. Like, oh my gosh, it is, it is a remarkable day when everything goes right. <laughs> it's like so rare. So I don't know. I mean, now that I'm moving in, like I'm moving out of, you know, I graduated from my master's degree right when the pandemic started. So I've been freelancing for the last, like I've just been freelancing for the last year and a half and starting to feel a little bit more what it's like to work with other people. And it's just incredible. Like I am a collaborator by nature and I'm really excited to have that opportunity to just make, but you know, you just make better work when you're working with other people, like, because you can just focus on a singular thing. And while I think it's like a skill I can tout that, you know, I'm a one man show and I wear a lot of hats. Um, like you're going to get a better piece of work if you just hire more people and just like, that's hard in the documentary filmmaking world when, um, you know, it's really hard to get stuff funded. And so you're often having to cut corners and just make it work. 
And uh, and speaking of audio, uh, you know, the, what really prompted me to reach out to you was the wonderful piece you had done on your on your grandmother for this American Life. So, uh, you know, maybe you can uh, just you know tell me how you how you arrived at that story, how you landed it with this American Life, and uh, maybe just you know tell people who maybe haven't heard it what it, what it was about. Yeah, I mean, should I not give anything? Maybe I shouldn't give away the ending for people who haven't heard it. I don't want to have spoilers <laughs> sure we can we, we can we can tease that out we can say okay. right, you know we're not going to spoil it and go listen to it to yeah it's a beautiful piece that you that you did but uh maybe you can uh, you know just tell a little bit about the the backstory of it and how how you came to land it with this american life i so at the beginning of the pandemic um i had this phone call with my family where my dad was basically my dad made this call to action to everyone in the family saying, um, you know, we need everyone to call Grandma D as much as possible over the next few weeks. Because, of course, at the beginning, no one knew how long this was going to last. We thought it was a couple of weeks. And my grandma was in assisted living. She was living in Colorado. And um, most of us were on the East or West Coasts. So no one was really nearby. Not that it mattered during a pandemic. But um, she was alone because they shut down her assisted living and she was completely isolated. Uh, she wasn't allowed to go outside. The only people she would see were staff. And then every once in a while, you know, they would open up the door and let people walk in the hallways. So, you know, she was lucky if she could come in contact with people that way. She was, she was totally alone. And so when you have, um, when you have dementia, which she had, you, isolation is really bad. Um, you need that constant stimulation to keep your mind, to keep your mind intact, essentially. And so we were all really worried about her. Um, and so my dad was like, you know, we all need to be calling her as much as possible, getting her on the phone, talking so she doesn't feel lonely. So she's not isolated. Um, and I was, I recorded my phone calls with her and, um, I did that because I, there's a lot of reasons for why I did that. Um, you know, my grandmother was 80, she's 87 and I wanted to have a piece of her. Like, you know, I thought in a sense, like maybe this could be an oral history po- project. I'd recorded stuff with my other grandmother before I have a box of, um, tape recordings that my great grandfather recorded of himself. Like, so I just wanted to have a piece of her. So I was recording these phone calls with her, um, with her permission. And we were talking about like every week or twice a week at the beginning. And, um, her, her dementia deteriorated really rapidly. So it was like in the matter of a month that she started to drop like just go way downhill. And, um, we were all really surprised and, um, it was pretty devastating. And so I continued recording with her and essentially decide, I won't say like what happened, but, you know, at the end of it had all of these phone calls, recordings that I was trying to figure out what to do with. And I was having some conversations with, um, friends and you know they suggested like maybe you should turn these into a story uh and you know I was grappling with a lot 
And I had a lot of questions kind of about like, given that my grandma had dementia and that her dementia was deteriorating rapidly. Like there were a lot of questions around consent. Um, You know, like, was it right? What was okay for me to do with these recordings? So I took a, I basically decided, you know, why not try? So um, a friend of mine had a connection in Visibilia and she connected me with Yoe Shaw there. And I pitched the story there they turned it down because they had done a similar sort of dementia story, I guess, like recently enough and suggested that I reach out to this American life. And like, at the time I was just like, what? I can't reach out to this American life. Like I had, (laughs) I had nothing published, like no audio work published um, with the exception of this one podcast called listeners podcast, which I worked on last spring which no one listens to, ironically, even though it's called Listener's Podcast. Like it's <laughs> it's a podcast that the University of Oregon puts on. And I just like had a lot of fun with it and was allowed to produce like four episodes for them and did that. But apart from that, like I had no not much of a professional audio journalism resume. And so I was terrified, but I started working on a pitch and Luckily, like I knew someone who knew someone who was a producer there and they offered to connect me over email so I could send my pitch directly to someone um, on the team. So I did that and I got a response. And so um, there was like some hesitation uh, at first about whether they wanted to do it because it was a personal story and it was sort of, you know, they don't really often work with contributors on personal stories because it's it's hard to determine what the story is going to end up sounding like, uh, I guess, as opposed to a reported story. So there was a lot of hesitation. Um, there was a couple of months of back and forth. And eventually they were like, you know what? We're just going to pay you to do it. So um, I started working with Lily Sullivan there. And, yeah. oh, it was incredible. She was so amazing to work with. And like the work that this, this particular story was, you know, it was like involved a lot of really sensitive material and there were a lot of like ethical challenges around consent. And, um, there were, it was, it was just like, it was fresh, you know, there were a lot of like complicated emotional feelings about the story for me and working with her was great. She was super respectful and, um, you know, we really worked together to choose all of the tape we were going to use for the story. Um, and to write the story. So it was a really collaborative process. How did you uh, record your phone calls? Uh, was it with an app or yeah. you know, how, do you, how do you go about that? Yeah, that was with an app. Um, tape a call. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Tape okay. I think I've heard of that. Yeah. 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 Um, highly recommend it. Yeah. Tape a call. Tape a call pro, I think is what it's called. Nice. And so what was the the process? And given that you love collaboration so much, what was the collaborative uh, experience like between you and Lily and maybe some someone else? I imagine there wasn't probably another cook or two in the kitchen, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The whole I, I had no idea what went into this American Life story. It is wild how many people they involve in the process. Um, so the editor that we worked with was David Kestenbaum. He is Lily's editor, so um, that's who I guess she works with on a lot of stories. And then Tobin Lowe was also helping edit the story. And so it was mostly Lily and I kind of 
at the beginning, we both on our, you know, individually chose the tape that we liked the best. So chose kind of the pieces of recordings that we liked the best and then came back and talked about like where that tape overlapped to try and whittle down the the amount of tape we were going to use. And then um, we sort of laid it out into a structure. It really made sense for the story to be chronologically, I think, to to both of us. So there wasn't like a huge conversation there. And then, you know, Lily helped me out. And I guess they do this with all their contributors is, you know, she kind of talked me through like what should be written in between the tape. Um, So it's not like she would write it, but she would be like, maybe write something like this, this or this. And we would, you know, have a conversation about that. And then I would walk away and write it. Um, And then, you know, we went through a couple of drafts like that. And and then what happens is you dive into these edit sessions where you get on the phone on a Zoom call with, um, you know, I'd be Lily and David Kestenbaum. And then they would bring in a couple of people from their team to um, listen to a live reading. And so I would read live and then Lily would play the tape as it would, as you know, it would pop up in a, in a real audio story. So you're trying to like recreate the real audio story setting without actually having to like edit it all together. So it was a live reading. And then you would go through these, you know, critiques with all the people on the phone. And then you would walk away and make edits and then you would come back. And sometimes it was like, 24 hours later, we're doing another one. So it was like a kind of whirlwind of two weeks in the month before the story aired, where we were just like doing these edit sessions over and over again, rapid fire. And then towards the end, they bring in Ira and he reviews every word of the script pretty much. Um, So you spend a lot of time with him walking through it, talking through, you know, differences of opinion, you know, talking through structural changes. And then eventually you decide it's a locked script. And I make some room in my closet and record the whole (laughs) thing. And then, and even that process, like I'm on the phone with Lily while I'm doing the recording and she's saying things like, you know, do that line again, but with flatter affect or like a little less dramatic on that one or, like maybe, you know, start in a lower octave when you say when, like really specific kind of like voice coaching stuff. And, and, and then, yeah. And then, you know, a couple of days later, I'm hearing it on the radio. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> it's so cool to hear kind of a, an insider's take on the experience of what it takes to put together uh, a show of that caliber and it really is such a brilliant essay and it's and story that you're able to that you piece together and it's so evocative and telling you know and sad and and just deeply and deeply moving and emotive and that's just a testament to to your reporting and your skill and with you and you know everyone around you Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was a, I mean, it was a really difficult story to build just because it was personal. And I don't do a lot of personal storytelling. Um, I mean, especially not in documentary film work. Uh, So that was really hard. Like, you know, you have to deal with a lot of vulnerability, putting yourself in a story. And this story in particular, like there were a lot of concerns too about like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm airing these conversations I had with my grandmother who has dementia and 
you know, there were there were a lot of concerns, one of which being like, you know, are people going to judge me for things that I say to my grandmother? Like, did I say the wrong thing? Because it's really hard talking to people who have dementia and there's no right way to talk to them. It's really, it's really difficult. Every day is different. And sometimes you just have no idea what to say because they are in a totally different world than you. Um, Mm. So there's a lot of like, vulnerability in their recordings and you know this american life like they pushed me to put a lot of vulnerability in my writing as well and that was something that was new to me so it was a really cool process and also like just to be someone who's relatively new to audio journalism and getting to see what their process was like um you know how the sort of like the step by step how they build scripts in what order they pick tape and just like hearing from really skilled audio storytellers on these critiques about, you know, how they think about story. It was so cool to get to do that and then get to walk away and think about how I can kind of like incorporate that now into my own work. Um, you know, even though I'm often working by myself. So, um, it was just like, I learned so much through the entire process. Yeah. What was the as a storyteller yourself, what was the the biggest takeaway and the greatest lesson you learned from that process that you're going to then, you know, like, is it kind of take to your, your projects, your, whether it be audio or video? That's a really good question. I mean, there's a couple of things. I think one would just be in terms of the process of editing. Like I have so often edited my audio stories in which I don't spend a ton of time in transcripts. Instead, I will throw everything into Audition, which is like the editing software that I use. I will listen to tape and pull selects as I'm listening. I will, instead of writing, I'll just kind of like narrate something on my phone. I'll just do a voice memo and then throw it on. So like my whole process before this was working inside of Audition. And that's because I'm not a writer. Like, I'm really not a writer. So many people come to audio storytelling and audio journalism because they're in print journalism. And that's, like, I've never considered myself a writer. So for me, like, working in that format where I am just working with recordings and not necessarily, like, looking at words made the most sense to me. But after doing this process where like everything they do, it's all in the script. So you're making all of the changes in the script. You don't even record anything until like a day before the story airs or a couple of days before the story airs. And that process just makes so much more sense. And maybe that's what like all professionals do. And I'm just learning this for the first time because I'm pretty new to it, but that was a big thing I learned. And then the other piece is just about how to write for radio. They write, how they talk. And, um, you know, I know everyone says that, right? How you talk, but like their writing is so simplified. Like they have really pulled out, they, they helped me learn how to pull out like all of the unnecessary, unnecessary language that I really didn't need, um, in my stories and to just really rely more heavily on the recordings themselves and the tape that you're choosing to tell the story instead of as a narrator trying to write about it. It's like, just let them listen to it and let them take away what they want to take away from it rather than, you know, writing as a narrator, like this is how you should feel about this thing. Um, And so it, 
it, I think it really changed the way that I wrote working with them um, just to write in that much more simplified way. And the other thing is like, this was a really sad story too. So for, you know, I think for other stories, they might've done it differently, but like a lot of the coaching I got and the um, feedback I got on this story was just that um, it's such a sad, sad story. Like you don't want to step on the emotion of it and you don't want to prescribe emotion. Um, mm, yeah. So like, because of that, you know, I was probably taking more out of my writing than I would if I was writing like a comical piece for them. I think it would be really different. Yeah. There's a, in conversations I've had with, uh, you know, editors, it's, uh, because sometimes the weakness I've had is to try to be a little too forward as a narrator to try to be like very pyrotechnical in the way I write. And, and yeah. I've learned, I've learned over the last say five years or so, probably in the last three to really just surrender to story and just tell it straight. Mm -hmm. And if you do enough good reporting or, you know, collect enough tape, collect enough uh, footage or whatever, if you do enough of that legwork, then you know, your style still comes through, but you're doing it in such a way where the story is the star and you just kind of surrender to that. And if you can do that, it's all the more powerful because then you're really in service of the reader or the listener or the viewer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I think that's so true. And that's like what I'm most comfortable with. Like, I think as a filmmaker, I'm not putting myself in the story often. I see myself more as like a a vessel, I guess, or, you know, or a facilitator of someone's story. So, um, I'm, I'm, and that's why, like, you know, I've been more comfortable making films than audio. And that feels more comfortable to me just because it's, I'm like sort of, sort of the silent observer in the piece versus when you're making audio, the expectation is to put yourself more in the story. At least that's kind of what I'm learning. And that's been uncomfortable for me to learn like that process and, you know, become okay putting myself in the story. And, and so writing really simply and just kind of letting the tape speak is what I would prefer to do. Um, and so I think it, it just kind of like affirmed <laughs> some of the things that I feel most comfortable with anyways in my work. And what do you make of the, the filmmakers that are more, they try to make themselves or maybe not try, but uh, it's hard to say that they're not trying to kind of make themselves the star of the show. Like, like your Morgan Spurlocks or Michael. Michael yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, what do you make of those, those, uh, you know, very director forward movies? Yeah. I, you know, I think it's like to each, to each his, his or her own, <laughs> you know, there's like the world needs Michael Moore's and, Errol Morris's. And, um, I think that, you know, Werner Herzog puts himself in there a lot too. Like, I think that that style of storytelling is, you know, important. I think there's a lot of benefits to doing that. You can, um, especially when you're doing more of like an investigative piece where you're trying to like hammer facts out of a person that you're interviewing and trying to get the story straight and trying to like, I, I, I mean, I guess just taking that approach, it sometimes makes sense to put yourself in the story because you're this investigator who's like following the story and become a character yourself because you're kind of shaping the story. Um, 
by the way that you move through it in this kind of like um, investigative way. I think that's great. It's not, it's not for me. Like I am, I don't really like doing those huge investigative stories, at least not yet. That hasn't been my style. I'm more interested in the people um, and having, you know, really intimate conversations that make viewers feel more understood or make them feel less alone or that shed light on the fact that like, someone on the other side of the world has this emotion that you have, but that you haven't told anyone about. Like, that's the kind of storytelling I like to do. And I don't need to be in those stories. Like the story isn't about me. It's about the person who's sharing it. And so I'm there to try and help them share that story um, so that I can get out in the world. But like, you know, so that for the stories I want to tell, I think, putting myself in it doesn't necessarily make sense, especially just with documentary filmmaking. Right. And a perfect illustration of you doing that is in your uh, award-winning film, Root Shocked, you know, this 15 minute brilliant little film that tells about the, you know, the property, uh, you know, property blight and uh, the systemic racism in Portland that led to some of that and uh, the inability for, you know, a family and namely you know, black families not to accumulate the kind of generational wealth that allows people to rise through the middle class and maybe even higher. And you do that so, so well in this 15 minute pill mm-hmm. of a movie. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. That was a hard film to fit into 15 minutes. It was a I can't lot imagine. of information. <laughs> um, and, and like that story, you know, as a white person, definitely don't need to be in that story. Like that story is definitely not about me. I, I had a lot of conversations with Cleo, the main character before we started filming about, you know, like he didn't feel comfortable with initially he did not feel comfortable with me being the person to document this story. Um, you know, I'd heard about it on the radio. I reached out to him like in a million different ways. Cause I was just like, this story is incredible and I think it should be documented visually um, and shared. Cause this is a really important part of Portland's history and something that is still happening today that people don't know about. Um, and, you know, I heard that he was going to try and move this house as this sort of like monumental feat that would um, be really symbolic to, to just like the amount of, blight and redlining that had ruined the black community's ability to um, generate wealth through property ownership. So like he was going to do this big, really visual thing and it was for the black community. And like, as a, you know, white journalist, he had, when we spoke, like he told me he'd been wronged by a lot of white journalists before. And Mm. he had, been featured in stories that he just felt like weren't really true. Um, They weren't told in a truthful way and he felt they like harmed his community. And so I I totally understood that. And, um, you know, we had ultimately decided on a pretty collaborative approach to telling that story for that reason. Um, So, you know, Cleo was involved in terms of like, we had conversations about who he thought I should interview in the community um, to tell the story. And there were times where I was like, oh, I'm thinking about interviewing this person. And 
we would have a conversation about why he thought that person wasn't good to interview. And so I ended up showing him drafts and he would give me feedback. Um, And ultimately it became a piece that him and his family have been using. They're still using it to fundraise for um, all of the renovations they're going to do on this house that's been moved to this new location. It's going to be turned into um, like an artist residency and community center for the black community. And like, that's really exciting for me that it ended up being something that they um, felt like they could use. Um, So like it was, it was a success in that sense. Um, But a lot of history, a lot of like complicated history to try and jam into 15 minutes. Yeah. Oh, unbelievable. Well, Cecilia, I, I want to be mindful of your time. And I always like to end these conversations by asking guests for recommendations of some kind. So I'd extend that uh, question to you that what might you uh, what's what's out there that you wouldn't mind recommending to the listeners? Well, I mean, I would have to recommend some of the documentaries that I think I've talked about during this conversation. I mentioned The Sensitives, um, which is a documentary about people who live with chemical sensitivities and have to live in isolation. Um, I would recommend Time, um, the documentary that was nominated for an Oscar um, about, you know, waiting for someone to get out of the criminal justice system. And, um, and then, you know, those are both kind of like serious films. There's this other documentary called Dina, which is incredible. And actually like, I, I watched when I was, I was working on a story about a family who is struggling to treat their son with autism. And this story is this really like wonderful romantic comedy documentary. I feel like people are always recommending really sad documentaries, but this one is, um, you know, really lighthearted. It's called Dina and it's this romantic comedy about two people who have autism who are falling in love and it's just such a sweet and beautifully shot documentary. And so like, yeah, those three documentaries definitely have informed some of the work that I've made and I think everyone should watch them. Fantastic. And now where can people find you online, Cecilia? Um, So my website is ceciliabrownmedia.com. So um, C-E-C-I-L-I-A, Brown Media. And um, my portfolio of all my work is is on my site. So you can check it out there. Fantastic. Any social media that you routinely oh, use? Or- yes. So I'm not a Twitter person. Like I said, I'm not a writer. So like words, not totally my thing, but <laughs> I'm on Instagram. Um, my Instagram handle is at Cecil Brown. I think there's two N's in the brown. I mean, I was like all they gave me. <laughs> it's my only <laughs> option. Um, so you can find me. You can find me there as well. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for the time and great talking to you, Cecilia. Thanks. It was great talking to you too, Brendan. Have a good one. If you're listening to this on CNN Friday, I should be somewhere across the Midwest, probably the godforsaken stretch of I-80 in Nebraska, heading back to Oregon. Oh, what a, what a stressful trip. I mean, uh, because hotels, uh, even shitholes like Super 8s, are several hundred dollars a night. We borrowed, We decided to borrow a three-person tent and are hitting three KOA campgrounds as we go west. LaSalle, Illinois, 
Laramie, Wyoming, and then Jerome, Idaho. And then last day we will get into Western Oregon. Uh, yeah. And after working from the East Coast and seeing family, which if we're being honest is never rejuvenating, learned a lot of, a lot of things I wish I didn't know. And also being vegan is something, uh, uh, it's just a, it's a challenge <laughs> and being vegan among people who want to tell you how it is all day long. is just exhausting. So we dispense with much of the smiling and just nod now. So it's just nodding. We don't comment. Eh, I'm just, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. It's exhausting. Anyway, thanks to Cecilia for the time and her great insights into the creative life of making pictures. Isn't that cool? Making pictures. I kind of dig that. And thanks for listening, CNFers. Thanks for the support. Thanks to WVWCMFA in creative writing, as well as Hippocamp 2021 for the support. And thanks for being along for this ride. I mean that. If you want to be a member and get access to all kinds of goodies and the chance to ask questions and get credit for it, go to patreon.com slash cnfpod and sign up for the, the lowest tier. And of course, you get access to transcripts, of which I'm horribly behind on transcripts. I'm really sorry. I just haven't had the time to clean up the transcripts. I'm getting on it, and uh, hopefully we'll start refreshing that reservoir as we get through the July pods. In any case... Uh, nobody took me up on the offer to ask Cecilia any questions when I put out a feeler for questions on the Patreon page. Okay. Uh, nor Daniel Collitz, who I'm speaking with uh, soon. Missed that chance, but yeah, the opportunity stands. Uh, for the He's the bonus Adivist episode, not that that matters. Uh, if you want in on that action, hit up Patreon to help with the podcast utility bill. The podcast is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. And I'll leave you with this. So Cecilia produced the film So Mom, which is really cute. I hope you get a chance to watch that. And we talked about it on in the show. But she produced that film in the cracks between her life and the day job to see if it was something she could do, something she would love doing. So what is the thing you're putting off that you could be doing for 20 minutes a day and that slow accretion will you know build the body of work? Something you've always wanted to do but maybe were afraid to do. You know, take inspiration from Cecilia and give it a shot. All right? So stay wild, CNFers. And if you can't do, interview. See ya.